come here and to be in your presence and to be your people. It's something that every every time I come here, I am I'm reminded of, of the fact that I don't deserve to be here and I don't deserve to be representing you and, and just just the the act of coming close to you is is serious and it's something that I don't know that I can take too serious and and I know that oftentimes I don't and I, I pray this morning that that if we don't already do, we begin to take this seriously and that that Sunday mornings would not just be Sunday mornings. That, that coming into your presence and, and, and wanting to know more about you, wanting to sing about you, and wanting to get together as a church and wanting to tell people about, about Jesus wouldn't just be Sunday morning, but that it would be every morning. I pray that during this time you would, you would speak through my mouth. Uh, bring to mind things that are in your word draw them up and, and speak through me the things that, that we all need to hear and, and help us all to, to have our ears opened so that we can hear, honestly hear what you have to say. And don't ever let the things that we hear Be with us during this time, God. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see you. 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 Good not just the paint on the walls, but you know, we've lost a lot of people. And a lot of people for, for some of the best reasons, and you probably know a lot 
cool what God's been doing, even though we are really, have really, really meager means. Um, we sent off several people to like the violence. We're totally missional about going to Knoxville, and that was awesome just to hear them talk about it. Um, and, and I know that Paul and Sarah, they, they were missional in their mindset going out there. Um, and Jacob and Brooke are in New Jersey now doing missions in an urban neighborhood in, uh, in Camden. And Brenna. Brenna, who will, who will be returning? We haven't started. Yeah, she's on the way back. She's yeah. in the three weeks. Thankfully. Um, but, but yeah, a lot of things have changed. Um, but we've been going through Hebrews for a little while now. Um, we have been going through Acts, now we're going through Hebrews. And Hebrews is dense. Um, it is not the easiest of reads. Um, I, I kind of compared it before to like a serialized drama, kind of like a show. Uh, like, I compared it to Lost because that's really the only serialized show that I've watched from front to back. But it's kind of like one of those shows where it just keeps building on itself so that if you just jump in the middle, you might think, what did I miss? Um, but there's a lot of good things in Hebrews, but it is thoughty. And it's, it, it involves a lot of Old Testament. So he, he's continually drawing on these Old Testament images and ideas without really always explaining every little detail. So he kind of says, you know how the Old Testament talks about this? Well, since that's the case, this. So you have to kind of go back and say, what, what, what is he talking about exactly? Um, and, and that's kind of relating to what we're getting into today. We're in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to finish out 5 today. And we're going to do a little bit of six. Nate's not here either. I, I thought that specifically because there's a portion of six that's going to be interesting for everybody, I, I suppose. Um, but six, six gets a little intense. Um, but we're just going to tease out six a little bit. Um, but we're going to Hebrews 5, verse 11. And I'm going to go through chapter 6, verse 3. And I stop there because after that it gets into a whole kind of different line of thinking. So let's just read those six verses. Hebrews 5, verse 11. And if you don't have a Bible, I, I always forget to say this. It looks like everybody's going to go. But we've got extra Bibles back there, and I think this is page 650 in the Bibles back there, Hebrews 5. So if you need one, uh, just feel free to go grab it. Um, but here we go, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance, from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So, I feel like this is the most direct that he has been, like the most maybe confrontational he has been so far, the author of Hebrews. Um, this sounds a lot like what he's already been saying quite a few times through Hebrews, but it's just like, it's a little bit punchier. 
He, he has said in earlier sections, like he, he's trying to explain how Jesus is better in, in all kinds of different ways. Because he's talking, for the Hebrews, he's talking to Jews, and they come from this, this Old Testament background, and they know a ton about the Old Covenant, and he's trying to tell them about how Jesus is, is the New Covenant, he's better, and, and he's better, and he fulfills all these things in all these different ways. So, so he makes all kinds of different little arguments about how Jesus is better, and, and he peppers it with comments like in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And then, uh, further down, in chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Later on, he says that we need to, beginning of chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. One more. Oh, uh, the end of chapter 4. Let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. There was one more that I missed. Hold fast our confessions. Like he keeps, he keeps re reminding people, hey, pay attention to Jesus. Will you look at Jesus, please? Will you listen to the, to the things that you're hearing right now? And, and he has said that over and over and over. It's kind of like this, it's almost like a passive reminder because he's not just gone and, and assaulted them um, because he's just saying, hey, good thing to do. Follow Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Do these things. But then he gets to the, to the end of chapter 5 here and he's saying, it's hard to explain these things to you because you're dull. And it feels like it's, it's kind of getting a little bit more uncomfortable, maybe. Um, we talked about this before, but Hebrews, a lot of people think that Hebrews was a sermon, and maybe this is like somebody's sermon notes. It be a pretty serious sermon, a pretty big sermon. Um, because it's, because of the way that it's written, it's not written like a lot of the other letters. It's written more like it's, it's like maybe it was, a, I can't think of the word now. Um, it was spoken to people. Um, and we're not quite sure who wrote it. A lot of people say Paul. He's probably the most common. Um, but then there's some dispute there too, so I just keep saying Dr. Hebrews because a lot of people smarter than me are debating this, so I just say Dr. Hebrews. Um, but anyway, it's, kind of, it's, it's getting a little bit more serious. And he's saying, this is hard to explain because you've become dull here. And, and I think what, what we need to pay attention to there is the fact that he's not speaking to Pharisees. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to a group of, of church members when he says, hey, I'm having a hard time talking about these things because you guys are dull. So, so I don't want us to play that off as though that's not us. Like, oh, that's, like when Jesus assaults the Pharisees, we think, oh, well, they were unbelievers, you know. They, that's not me. Uh, I believe in Jesus. Uh, I'm not rebuking him. Um, and, and, you know, even that's pushing it a little bit. But... But with this, he's specifically talking to a church, and he's saying, you have become dull of hearing. So I don't want this to be this impersonal thing, like, oh, that, that old Hebrew church is awful. I want us to figure out what exactly does he mean, and, and have we become dull of hearing. But before that, let's back up just a little bit and get to the beginning, because some of us haven't been here. When he says about this, 
he, he had just launched into talking about Jesus as a high priest. And I think that he's kind of generally saying, I have a lot to say about Jesus being the high priest. More specifically, he might be talking about Melchizedek, because he, just a few verses before, he had made multiple references to this man, Melchizedek, which Melchizedek is from the Old Testament, but he occupies like this small sliver of the Old Testament, like literally four or five verses of the Old Testament. But he's making a big deal out of it. And I feel like he's, he's getting ready to explain this. He says, uh, are we reading his sentence? And being made perfect, Jesus, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. So I feel like he's, he, he kind of pauses and says, I have to explain these things to you, and I'm actually really glad that he did, because otherwise we might be scratching our heads saying, how is, this, how is Melchizedek important? Um, this is kind of a tangent, I feel like. He's, he's, he's stepped away from the message to say, now, pay attention. Um, because right after this tangent, he goes back and talks about the, the high priest, and specifically spends a lot of time talking about Melchizedek. So I feel like when he says about this, we have much to say, he's talking about the high priesthood and Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. So he's saying, I have a lot to say about this, but it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. So what does it exactly mean to be dull of hearing? He, he makes this comparison. He calls us babies. Bible babies. Like we don't, and, and that might not sound insulting. I don't know if you spend a lot of time around babies. <laughs> I can go grab one for you. Um, babies cannot do anything. Um, what? Yeah, they poop, they whine, they don't get anything done. Like, if I brought Isaac up here and said, I'm going to need you to do something for me, nothing. He doesn't get it. He's not going to. He doesn't have the ability to. Um, can't do anything. So when he says you need milk, like we're not, you can't even eat solid food. Like Isaac is already eating some solid food, and he's one. So we're talking like infants, little babies. It's like you guys are little babies. You can't handle the tough stuff because you're not ready for it yet. I think that he goes on anyway. He's going to say, let's do it anyway. Um, but, but that's pretty serious, and you, and you might not make a big deal out of that, but he's calling you a baby, and saying you, you cannot handle even the simplest of things. So, what is that, what is that, what, how, does, how does that get determined? Is it based on how much you know? To some extent, I think, yeah, it's based on how much you know, but I think even more than that, perhaps, it's based on how much you do with what you know. And I kind of get that based on other similar references. I'm going to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I don't know if anybody's using one of the other Bibles, any help, it's page 619. Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. But I, brothers, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So, there's that, there's one other one. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In both of those instances, apart from this used here in Hebrews, they're talking about what you do with it, what you do with, with what you've heard. And to the Corinthian church, he says, you know, you might have heard the gospel, but you're still acting as though you don't, you don't know what this is all about. This is about Jesus. This is not about who has the best teacher, who, who preaches the best. Who baptized you? It's like saying, I got baptized by John Piper. It's like, well, John Piper is nobody compared to Jesus. So he's saying, you're just acting like a bunch of, like a bunch of idiots, like a bunch of babies. You, you don't get it. <clears throat> so, so the action is kind of what, what led him to say, you need milk because you're not, you're not moving past these really basic kinds of things. And Peter's, it's kind of the same thing where he's saying, Put away all these, all these things. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all these sinful things. Become this new person. Desire what God has for you, which is different. And, he, and he, he, he refers to the Bible as spiritual milk. It's like, here, you need this in order to nourish you, in order to mature you, like in a very phys physical sense. Like it is going to provide what you need to mature. So I, I kind of, you know, being that those references, those, those kind of similar allusions are in other parts of the Bible, I get the, I get the sense that when he's talking about being dull of hearing, it could mean that you don't understand the basics. But I think it's more than that. I think it's that you don't live like you know the basics. Because he says, at this point, you ought to be teachers. But you need somebody to go back and explain these things because obviously you haven't put them into practice. It's like the guy who, I don't know, this, this could describe me sometimes. Sometimes, I mean, out of a sense of pride, somebody's giving you instructions and you're like, mm hmm, mm hmm, okay, I get it. Do you have it? And you, you're like, you. Maybe in a job situation, like a supervisor's trying to give you all these instructions, and they're like, you need to do this, 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 and you're sitting there, mm-hmm, yes. Maybe you're getting trained on the job, and you think, yeah, God, I can do this. And they say, are you sure? Yeah. I'm okay, go do it. You go do it, and you're just like fumbling all over the place. And, all, and they're like, okay, let's go back over this. You don't, you don't quite have this down yet. That's kind of the idea, is that they've heard a lot of this. He says, you should be teaching. But they, they don't get it yet, because they're not living it yet. So, so, not moving on too quickly, how do you think that we become dull of hearing? You don't have to necessarily answer that, unless you're your looking at the right now. Let me tell you. I feel like we kind of have the same kind of situation. We're sitting there nodding our heads at church, mm-hmm, and then we go out and act like we have no clue. 
um, I feel like it's kind of a, it's a pride that makes us do that. Like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I got it. I got it. But then, but then nothing happens. It's almost like the Pharisees, I feel like. Because Jesus confronted them so many times and, well, over things that he thinks they should have known. And I don't have a particular reference in mind, but um, it happened several times where, where they were questioning him, questioning him about all these Old Testament things. And he said, have you not read that this is the case? Like, they didn't understand in the first place, even though they were the ones who, who were like marching like troops through the city, acting like they were, they were enforcers. When, when Jesus is saying, you don't get it. You, know, you, you haven't really read this. So I feel like, I know that there's a tendency for me to do this, because I've grown up in church. So so many times you sit and you hear the same old Bible, old Bible stories. And you're like, yeah, I know what that, I know what he's going to talk about, so I don't really need to pay attention. Um, and that happens to us all the time. And it's, I think it's, it's a pride, it's an arrogance, like, yeah, I've already got that. So I don't need you to tell me all about that because I understand what you're going to say before you tell me. Um, and we have that kind of that kind of attitude without this kind of humility that the New Testament says is characteristic of believers. This kind of humility when you approach the Word, when you say, "I still I know that that I'm still sinful, and because of that, I need every bit of this." Um, we become dull in this kind of pride and arrogance that says, I know, I already know all that. Laziness is another one. Um, I think we're going to talk about this more specifically here in a second. Um, but laziness keeps us from studying these things. And we feel, and, and again, maybe it's because we feel like, ah, we know that. So I'm going to go and, and not worry about studying that again because I kind of know what happened with Joseph and what that means in redemptive history. Uh, or I know what a high priest, uh, or whatever. And we just, we act like we don't need it, so we're just lazy, we sit around, we're like, yeah, I read that, I don't need to go read it. <clears throat> I think that a lot of times, and Carla actually mentioned this, thanks, right <clears> here. <throat> a lot of times we show up here and we're not really ready, like we don't prepare ourselves to listen to this, you approach the Bible when you're reading it as like this kind of lifeless activity. You're going to read it, and, you, and then you say, okay, now that I've read it, I'm good. I'm a better Christian now. And, or I'm going to drag myself to church and, and show up just in time to hear what they have to say or what, what is being said. And, and, and there's this dullness to the whole thing. You don't, you don't prepare yourself so this is, this is a serious thing. And you don't act as though what you're hearing is life to you. And, and we don't strive to understand these things, but we just kind of show up and, and get whatever intake we think we need, and then we, then we leave. But that's not really what he says we ought to do. If you look further down into these verses, I'm looking down, I'm sorry, I'm just reading the verses over there. Um, says, for, by, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's essentially saying the Bible. When he says the basic principles of the oracles of God, um, oracles is used several times in the New Testament to kind of just mean scripture. So he's saying you need somebody to teach you the Bible over again because you don't, you don't understand. 
You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay, so this is interesting. He's saying that it's not, it's not something that you kind of just get. Um, it's not, okay, I'm a Christian now, so I kind of kind of got it. Um, it requires training, constant practice. A lot of us will think of training and constant practice with regard to a lot of other things in life. Oh, I've got to study for this test. I've got to complete this degree. I've got to practice for this marathon. I've got to do whatever. There's a million things where we're willing to say, "I'm not there yet. I need to be. I need to be disciplined. I need to work hard at this. It's not something that I'll just be able to like practice a few times and then go run that marathon. You have to work up to that. And you can't. You can't just say, "I'm gonna. I'm, I'm just gonna show up." show up, it's going to be awesome. Because um, it's not going to be awesome. Um, when, when we come up here to play music, it's like that didn't just happen. All these people had to study these instruments and learn how to play them individually and then learn how to play them with people. And then we had to get the music for the particular song and get together and say, let's practice this maybe multiple times, maybe for several hours. Some weeks, yes, some weeks now. And and you, a lot of work just goes into just coming up here and, and being able to do that. But somehow we feel like Christianity doesn't really require that. Um, like it doesn't, it doesn't take that from us. It doesn't take constant practice and discipline. Um, and some of us would even, some of us even recoil at the thought that Christianity should take discipline. It's like, are you trying to preach your works based righteousness to me right now? Like, you think that, you know, I have to earn this? That's not the case at all. But the, the New Testament talks over and over about striving towards the goal. And what's the goal? Christ. Christ's likeness. So, how are you going to become like Christ if you never try? If you just sit around and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And that's kind of it. That's, that's the end of that. Um... Do you not think that it's harder to become like Christ than it is to pass that test or to run a marathon or to do all these other things? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually impossible. But it still says, strive anyway. Do it anyway. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to do this, is what it says. But you need to practice it. So he's saying that you guys are dull because you're unskilled, because you haven't practiced this. You haven't put in the time, the discipline, in order to understand what I'm talking about with you. So you have to, I'm going to have to dumb this down, bring it down a few levels, because you're not ready. We have this, this bad attitude about discipline, um, just with no matter what kind of discipline it is. Um, I picked up this book, because it's actually related to one of the classes that I have. Full disclosure. 
one of the classes that I have to go to for seminary um, that I'll be taking in probably a couple semesters from now. But it's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. If you were at Heritage, Don Whitney visited once. He talked about family devotions. He, uh, he wrote this also. But it's interesting. He talks about disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And it's not it's something that we always talk about, like, oh yeah, I need to be reading my Bible more, I need to be going to church, I need to be praying, I need to be doing all these things. And we use it as like this constant guilt trip. Like, yeah, I'm not doing that, but I need to be doing that, and I'm not. Um, and, and that kind of mentality, like, yeah, obviously we all know we need to be doing these things, but why? Why do we need to be doing these things? And I feel like kind of the way that he frames it is, is really helpful. So I'm going to read probably a, a good chunk here from this book because I thought it was helpful. Um, just talking about, or thinking about disciplines. How, how do we need to think about practicing the Word of God. So I think this might be helpful. He says, discipline without direction is drudgery. So if you don't have a goal, then it sucks. Like, a lot of people say that it's easier to go work out if you say, I'm going to train for this marathon. You've got a goal. And you say, this is what I'm going for. So that I've got that in mind. So it's not just show up because it's good for you. But show up because you want to try to attain something. So he's saying without this kind of direction, it just feels like work. So he says, he gives this illustration. Imagine a six-year-old named Kevin. Sorry, no, no, uh, <laughs> no relation, no, re no direct reference there. I didn't like this. It actually says Kevin. <laughs> Whose parents have actually Whose parents have enrolled him in music lessons. After school, every afternoon, he sits in the living room and reluctantly strums home on the range while, while watching his buddies play baseball in the park across the street. That's discipline without direction. It's drudgery. Now suppose Kevin is visited by an angel. <laughs> One afternoon during guitar practice, he's given a vision. He's taken to Carnegie Hall. He's shown a guitar virtuoso giving a concert. Usually bored by classical music, Kevin is astonished by what he sees and hears. The musician's fingers dance excitedly on the streets with fluidity and grace. Kevin thinks of, of sorry. Kevin thinks of how stupid and clunky his hands feel when they halt and they stumble over the chords. The virtuoso blends clean, soaring notes into a musical aroma that wafts from his guitar. <laughs> oh, well. Kevin remembers the toneless, irritating discord that comes stumbling out of his hands when he practices. But Kevin is enchanted. You're enchanted. His head tilts slightly to one side as he listens. He drinks in everything. He never imagined that anybody could play guitar like this. What do you think, Kevin? Asks the angel. And the answer is a soft, slow, the vision vanishes. The angel is again standing in front of Kevin in his living room. Kevin, says the angel, the wonderful musician you saw is you in a few years. Then pointing at the guitar, the angel declares, but you have to practice. Suddenly the angel disappears and Kevin finds himself alone with his guitar. Do you think his attitude toward practice will be different now? As long as he remembers what he's going to become, Kevin's discipline will have a direction, a goal that will put him into the future. Yes, effort will be involved, but you can hardly call it drudgery. 
When it comes to discipline in the Christian life, many believers feel as Kevin did toward guitar practice. It's discipline without direction. Prayer threatens to be a drudgery. The practical value of meditating on Scripture seems uncertain. The real purpose of a discipline like fasting is often unclear. First, we must understand what we shall become. It is said of God's elect in Romans 8, 29, write this down. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's eternal plan ensures that every Christian will ultimately conform to Christ's likeness. We will be changed when he appears so that we shall be like him. This is no vision. This is you, Christian, in a few years. So I ought to talk about discipline. If God has predestined our conformity to Christ's likeness, where does discipline fit in? Although God will grant Christ's likeness to us when Jesus returns, until then he intends for us to grow toward that Christ's likeness. We aren't merely to wait around for holiness. We're to pursue it. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, says Hebrews 12, 14. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Which leads us to ask what every Christian should ask. How then shall we pursue holiness? How can we be like Jesus Christ, the Son of God? We find a clear answer in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Write this one down. Discipline yourself for the purpose of Godliness. There's another section that I won't read. I'll just kind of paraphrase. He talks about... He, he makes another kind of um, musical illustration where, where somebody sits down in front of a piano and they just start going crazy, playing these songs, and they, and they make it look so easy. And that's the way it is with any kind of discipline. You go watch guys playing a sport, and you're like, man, they're professionals, and they, they make it look so easy. Or somebody practicing a craft, and they just, they just perform it, and you, you look and you say, wow, that looks really easy. I don't know why this popped into my head, but I'm just thinking of like the glass globes of Dollywood. Um, <laughs> like they just, they're just doing it, and like, man, I can do that. Just get me in there. Give me the gloves. Um, and that's the way it is with any kind of discipline. When, when they're really, really good, they make it look easy. So you think, oh, I can do that. And then you get in there and you're like, oh, my goodness. There's no way. And he talks about it, it looks like they're so free. Like those people who have practiced so hard, it looks like they're so free within that environment to just do amazing things. And he says that kind of freedom doesn't just happen. He says you have to work at it. The, the reason that they have that kind of freedom is because they put in the time, the discipline, to work at it. So, and for us, if we want to say that we have this down, then you can't just say, I read the instructions, so I'm pretty great at it. You have to practice. And he says that prayer and reading your Bible and memorizing and, and fasting and meeting with the church and worshiping and all these things, when though, though it seems at first like, man, this is going to be work, and it is, you have to keep in mind, Jesus is the goal. And and the only way you're going to become, quote, good at it is if you practice that. So that it looks like you are given so much freedom within this environment. And the cool thing about this, Christianity, is that it's not like just on the playing field. And it's not just at work, at your desk, or wherever it is that you work. It's everywhere that this permeates. 
So the freedom that you have to live out your Christian life comes from discipline, comes from knowing the boundaries and the rules and how to live out your life within Christ-likeness, within that, that idea of Christ-likeness. So, I'm, I'm still struggling with this. It's cool, the, the illustration is cool. Oh yeah, just, just set a goal and work. It's going to take a lot of prayer, I feel like. Because, it, you know, I read this book several months ago now. Well, not several months, about a month ago now. Um, but I mean, I'm still struggling to do this, like, all the time. Daily reading, setting aside time to say, I've got to do this. Because it's important. It's a discipline that I need to work on so that I can... I can become more Christ-like, so that I can live more like Christ. It's easy enough to set, but it's harder to do. This is where you guys come in, where we all come in. <clears throat> uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead words, etc., etc., he says, let us. He doesn't say, therefore you guys need to get your act together. He's talking to the church. He's a member of the church. So when he says, this needs to be improved, he doesn't point fingers and say, I'll be back in a year. You guys better get this straightened out. He says, let us leave this behind and move on towards maturity. Further on in Hebrews, this is becoming like one of my go-to verses. Weeks ago, um, keeps coming up. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, when we think about becoming disciplined, it's really easy to become, to get this kind of guilt and to feel like, man, I'm such a horrible person. I'll never do any better. I'll never meet those goals. And, and, and to get really bogged down in the discipline. But in 6.1, he's saying, let us do this. Let the church do this. And later on in Hebrews, he's saying, we need to be encouraging each other to do these things. So it's not just on us to point fingers and say, you need to get better at that. We do need to encourage each other, but at the same time, when you encourage, oftentimes you come alongside somebody. That's encouragement. Not sitting across, you know, this great chasm and saying, you better get over here or else. <clears throat> so I, I think that this is on us. So yeah, we could point fingers and say, hey, you, you need to get with the program. And I feel like I, there's plenty of areas where I can say that about myself. But what we need to, we need to have this kind of collective mindset where we're saying we are the ones who are responsible for encouraging one another, for living this life, and for moving on. When he says leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, he doesn't mean forsake it, like get rid of it, all right, trash that, new stuff. It means we're going to build on this. So we're, it's like, if you're building, if you're building a house, 
you set the foundation, that's awesome. You obviously have to have that foundation, and it has to be a good one. But you're not going to get the rest of the house built if you just come back and you say, let's check that foundation one more time. Is it level? Can we trust this? Can we, can we build something on this? I don't know. Well, so-and-so, you know, this critical theologian, this critical scholar thinks that maybe, maybe this, this foundation is not enough. Let's come back here and look at this one more time. We don't, I don't think that we really have this stuff. That's not at all the case with these basic things. I think it's particularly helpful that he lists the basics so that you kind of know. You need to know this and then do something with those things. So he lists them. He says, let us go on to maturity. Um, this is verse 1 going through. Not laying again a foundation of repentance. So repentance from dead works. You can't be a Christian unless you're repenting from dead works. Dead works being <laughs> everything not of God. Well, um, I might be able to pull a verse for But... We can't, we can't go on being Christians if the fruit that we exhibit is still completely worldly. If we are selfish, if we're greedy, if we don't love each other, if, if it's all about us all the time, that it's, not, it's not about you. Those are dead works. Those are vain things. So repentance from dead works is turning from those things. So you've got to know you can't just go on living like that. We're expecting that you're going to turn from those things. Faith towards God. Instruction about washings. Uh, baptismos is the Greek word used there. What does that sound like? Baptism. Uh, and, and it's particularly helpful that later on in Hebrews, he actually provides some contrast using this exact word. Um, I kind of just went with the commentators because everybody said, this is probably baptism. So I was like, okay, it's probably baptism. But then I thankfully found something later in Hebrews so that I could actually say, look, there it is. Um, Hebrews 9.10 talks about the washings and in the Old Testament, like cleansing rituals and things like that, and how those were big in the Old Testament and how those were important, but then later on he keeps building this case for Christ being better and in the New Covenant. In chapter 10, verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In between those two verses, he makes, he makes statements about how the Old Testament really could not cleanse your conscience, it couldn't cleanse you from unrighteousness, but then later on in Hebrews 10, he's saying, therefore, let us be cleansed, our bodies be washed, that word again, baptismos, with pure water. And... I think that that's a little bit more clear when you say, okay, he's making comparisons. Old covenant, new covenant. In the old covenant, they had all these ritual washings and things like that, but now we have baptism. So when we profess faith in Christ, we get baptized, and, and that is considered a foundational thing. I would, we, we could get more into that, but that would be fun. Um, the laying on of hands. This one in particular was interesting to me, and I'm not going to go on talking about this. I at first thought, you know, maybe I'll spend a lot of time talking about this. I don't think so. Um, but I think that it's interesting that the laying on of hands here is put in this very basic thing. Like repentance, faith in God, baptism, laying on of hands. Like how many churches, like some of, I know that Nate had told us he had been in a church where, yeah, this, this was a thing that we did all the time. But 
anybody else been in a church environment where laying on hands was just something that everybody knew as this is foundation? Just give me like one of these. I don't feel like um, There are a couple of senses, and people are kind of delighted on this one, and I'm not going to enter into this big debate because I don't feel like this is, this is, this would be a good thing to talk about in CGs. Maybe you want to study this and maybe try to figure out what he means. Because I feel like this is important. He's saying the laying on of hands. There are several references in Acts to the laying on of hands. And I can give you a couple. Let me see. I'm not, I'm not going to go in and study all these, but maybe this will get you started. Um, Acts 8, 17. Acts 19, 6. I think those are the only two that I wrote down. They're kind of similar uh, in the way that they're used. There are others. If you just go search laying on hands in the Bible, then you'll see a lot of references. It seems like there are three kind of basic categories. That's why I didn't use that one. <clears throat> Where laying on hands occurs. One is after baptism. There are several instances in Acts where they said, we're going to lay hands on you and we're going to pray that you receive the Holy Spirit. So that's one kind of instance. Pray that they receive the Holy Spirit. Another one is during healings. You'll often, you'll often see that they put his hands on him, pray, receive healing. And
God lets us do this. So I think that is a really good thing to make sure to act to your notes because we talk about discipline. Oh, I've got to work harder. I've got to do this. We need to be doing laying on of hands. Let's make sure that we check off this list, everybody. Um, but then at the end, he's saying, we will do all these things if God permits that you do all these things. So you've got to put it back into perspective and say, okay, this isn't just a checklist. This is, this is God-ordained. This is God-breathed. We're only going to live out this life by the Holy Spirit that gets granted to us. So yeah, we do need to strive towards these things. And I did right now he talks about making Christ's righteousness, Paul talks about making Christ's righteousness his own um, through faith that comes in Christ. That depend, uh, let me just read it. Philippians 3, uh, 8 through 16. Indeed, I count everything as lost, lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Discipline requires suffering and loss. Um, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, he's the goal, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, doesn't come from a checklist, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, leave behind these things, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. It's going to take work. It's from God. It's, it's not a righteousness that we attain on our own, but it's, it's a righteousness that we're given because Christ has done something for us. So this is not like absent from the gospel. This, this is the God. You were saved to something. Christianity is not that thing you did once. Like the prayer that you said that one time. Christianity is your life because Christ bought it. It talks in Corinthians that you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So, this is something that we all need to be doing. We all need to be making sure that we're paying attention to these foundational things, but then also moving on and saying, okay, we can't just sit around and keep talking about, you know, the same old things over and over and over. This has got to mean something. This has got to cause us to do something. So we want to do that, but we do it as the church. It's not like, oh, Daniel's going to go on and do that for the rest of us. So Tanner's going to go on and do it because they're in charge. And they're going to make sure that they're moving on, becoming mature, while the rest of us just kind of sit back and watch and listen. This is all of us. So this is something that we need to do. And I think we can all I think we, we could all be convicted, maybe more convicted over things that you know that you need to be doing in your own life and things that you see other people maybe need to be helped with. 
So when you get into CG, maybe you want to go ahead and have that discussion. You say, listen, I know that I don't do this. And I know that it's going to take discipline. And, I, and for five years, I've been in this church, I've been in the church, listening to people talk about how I ought to read my Bible, never do it, and I need to work on it. And, and, and let's stop talking about that as though like it's, it's that impossible dream that you're never going to accomplish. And, and actually start encouraging each other to do these things so that God is coming up to us several years from now, after we've been in church for a while, and saying, you ought to be teaching by now. But you're not your babies because you're not doing anything with this word.
to think that we work so hard, we're such better Christians than all you other Christians. That's not what it's about. It's about obtaining Christ. So I pray that I pray that you would protect us from those things, and that you would that your Spirit would live inside of us to move, to do these things, to show us the goal, Christ, in a really meaningful way that would move us, that would cause us to get out of bed excited to do these things, not dreading them, because they produce life. It's better than all these other disciplines. It's better than learning how to, learn, how to play a music instrument. It's better than learning how to play a sport. It's better than every little thing that we could go after because it, it actually gives life. And those things, while they are helpful, there's a lot of joy to be, done, to be had in them, they are ultimately temporary. They are created things, not creator gods. So I pray that you would move us towards those things and give us life and, and make us fruitful. Turn us from dead, from dead works. Make this church... production line for, for life. May the things that come in here receive life that comes from you and your word. And as we go out from here, may the things that come into contact with us receive life because of the life that you've given us. Help us to move on. So it might be a good reminder, hey, 
I'm going to try to do these things. The only way I'm going to do it is through Christ. I'm going to remind myself that Christ purchased us and I need his sacrifice. We're going to sing. Which everybody can do. All these things. Um, sing aloud. Sing as though these things.